Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's the start of another week. It's exciting. We've got lots going on this week. It's the anniversary of the Battle of Hastings this week. So we've got a bunch of... Uh, medieval uh, history podcasts and TV shows on the channel coming at you, including a big original documentary on the Battle of Hastings involving some of the best historians currently working in the field. This podcast is about something completely different. This is the excellent Sasha Coward. He's a queer historian. He's a broadcaster. He works in museums. He does tours of queer history around London. And he's an absolute legend. He's coming on the podcast because it's the 50th anniversary of... GLF, which was the forerunner of Pride, as you will hear. And we're talk about queer history. History Hit TV is having one of its insane autumnal sales because this week is the anniversary of the Battle of Hastings. So because of that, we've launched our huge new documentary, our original content on that Battle of Hastings, the tumultuous year of 1066. You can see that. Lots of other 11th century content. If you go to historyhit.tv, it's like the Netflix for history. And if you use the code 1066, 1066, you get a month for free. Then you get three months, which is one pound, euro, or dollar for each of those three months. So you're deep into 2021 and you're only paying a dollar a month. Crazy. So head over there and check it out. Sasha, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's delightful to be here. Thanks for having me. You should probably tell us what queer history is. For a lot of people, that might sound a little bit threatening or a little bit alien. And I guess I might as well prefix this by saying I'm going to use the word queer a lot. Uh, some people feel a bit uncomfortable with that word. And I completely understand why a lot of people who are part of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community also feel uncomfortable with that word. So I grew up and the word queer was kind of an insult as well as an identity. So it was kind of reclaiming something which was used as a negative and a way to talk about people who might define as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, anyone that isn't heteronormative. And this is applied to history, it's applied to art. It's basically just a different lens to look at history through. I think the big thing for me is, even though we call it queer history, it's just history. Like, it's still the same thing. It's still got to follow by the same rules. And if you're into history, you are also into queer history, whether you know it or not. It's just stories that focus or ways of platforming identities of people that we haven't spoken about very much. When we've told history before in the kind of academic textbooks and a lot of the documentaries up until today, often LGBTQ people, queer people, don't get a look in. So this is just a kind of way to try and balance it out by focusing on those people's stories. 
One of the reasons we're talking to you this week is because it is the 50th anniversary of the GLF. Talk, talk me through the GLF. Who were they? What were they? Well, they were the Gay Liberation Front. So we're sort of talking about, in the UK, the early origins or some of the main origins of queer activism. So this was groups of lesbian, gay, bisexual people coming together and basically trying to change the landscape of the world around them, trying to make it fairer and safer for everyone. At this stage, we would use the word gay as kind of synonymous for all of these different identities. Nowadays, we might include trans, we talk about intersex, non-binary, it's become a much bigger club, a much more inclusive club. Um, But at that time, the word gay kind of was a shorthand for all of those identities. So they were a a group of people uh, who came together, particularly gay, bisexual and lesbian men, to start talking about the rights and campaigning for the rights of queer people in the UK. We often talk about Stonewall. So if you've done any historical research into the US, Stonewall is their big moment. It's their big queer moment where suddenly there was a kind of tension point, a breaking point. And this allowed the conversation around being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender to suddenly come into the forefront, to be on the news and start this process of change. The UK has had loads of other moments like this. And organisations like the GLF and also CHE, for example, CHE, uh, also really really important in kind of platforming this and putting forward an agenda which include all of us. Extraordinary bravery at the time it was either still technically a capital crime or it was certainly immediate social professional ostracism. Hugely brave I mean I I realised that as a person who calls himself a queer historian, a folklorist, a museum worker, who is able to be out about my identity, I really am standing on the shoulders of giants. Like, I'm aware how easy I have it comparatively. And I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do today. I wouldn't be able to talk about the people that I talk about today if it wasn't for these incredible, well, call them heroes that came before us. All of these men and women who had to put their lives and their livelihoods on the line and really, really, really risk everything so that people like me get to talk on the podcast today. It's interesting because you, you're someone who's broadcasted and spoken and been part of exhibitions in museums about queer history. Are we able to talk confidently about people's sexual orientation or identity in the past? Yeah, and, and it's a really important thing to talk about because obviously those words just didn't exist. So in the past, people wouldn't be referring to themselves necessarily as lesbians or as gay men or bisexual, transgender. They just wouldn't be using those words. They either had different words or the very understanding of those identities was just different. You know, they didn't have space to have those kind of conversations. So I get a lot of fear. So, for example, I I do um, cemetery tours. I do them with my friend Sheldon Goodman. We did one for Brompton Cemetery where we were asked to come in and explore the stories of LGBTQ plus people in those cemeteries. And we did get some response of people saying, is it okay to, you know, metaphorically dig up the stories of dead people and start labelling them with labels that they would never have used? And you are walking a tightrope. It's a really difficult place to be because those words weren't there. At the same time, I would posit a few things that there are lots of words that have changed throughout history. The word marriage. So the word marriage today means something very different to what it meant in ancient Greece or Tudor times, but we still call it marriage. And that's just that maybe maybe I'm being a bit sneaky with that example. But our job as queer people who are doing history is try to be as faithful to the lived experience, so the lives of people who can't tell their own stories. I never, in my tours, say, this was a gay man, this was a bisexual woman, because that wouldn't be accurate. 
But what I can say is the way this person lived their life, the way that they expressed their identity, the people they loved and the, the people who loved them show that today they might, they might have used these terms. And as an LGBTQ community, their stories, whether they use those words or not, are really valuable to us because we can see ourselves reflected in the past. But it is, yeah, it's a really nuanced, complicated conversation to have. Speaking of the cemetery, tell me about Louisa Cassati. So she was a contessa and she um, was basically the Lady Gaga of her day, if I can take a bit of a liberty in saying that. She was extreme. She didn't want to be beautiful. This is a quote. Uh, she wanted to be a, a living work of art. So she was known for having these parties where she would descend down the spiral staircase with two cheetahs on diamante leashes with a live snake around her neck. She would dress as a chandelier. She would sometimes pretend to be a statue. And so her guests would walk around nibbles going where's Louisa where's Louisa and suddenly she would spring to life just to scare them she was a really bizarre artistic creative bohemian character and the reason we tell her story in the tour is because she kind of had room in her life to love everyone the fact that they were men or women was kind of irrelevant to her so famously she went to the island of Capri uh, where she went around with a group of women who were known as the extraordinary women um, and were very early parts of what would later be known as the lesbian movement and she basically met um, an artist called Romaine Brooks who uh, would probably have described herself as being a lesbian although again that's open to interpretation and they had a very intense friendship which resulted in them painting each other nude and with Romaine's girlfriend becoming incredibly jealous. There are lots of stories of um, Louisa. Basically she, she loved a bit of spin so at a party she would flirt with anyone and everyone and the more outrageous she could be the better. So her story is fabulous and she has this tiny little urn. You'd expect to have a huge headstone bedecked in jewels, but she has this little urn uh, which people still leave like makeup and photographs for her because she actually died in Primrose Hill in poverty. So she has this, it's just a great story to tell. This huge character that many people haven't heard of who inspired fashion designers all the way to today and had this amazing bodacious bisexual lifestyle and then kind of retired into obscurity. Now, she's one of those people that when I tell her story, I never feel bad kind of talking about her this way because her whole life was about spectacle. She wanted people to know who she was, how she dressed and what she did. What impact does you telling these stories, do you think, have on, well, on, on everybody, but particularly perhaps people who have been through their own battles, have been through their own issues with, with coming out and acceptance within a family or community? It's why I do it is because of that. I want everyone to enjoy these stories. So whoever you are, however you are identified, please, please enjoy these stories. But in particular, it has this special connection with people who are part of this community. So when I was a kid, I have always been a nerd. I love museums. I love old stuff. No, never happier than sitting in the British Museum or the Natural History Museum sketching at the age of seven or eight. That was just pure joy. But I do remember at about the age of 14 or 15, going around the British Museum on a school trip and just seeing all these images of uh, men and women in love, cuddling, hugging, marrying, showing affection, and just suddenly realizing that I love museums, but they didn't necessarily love me back. And what I mean by that is there's this weird kind of relationship you have going on where you're like, I, I never see myself. So as a teenager, and I think a lot of, of queer teenagers feel this way, you go, well, then I must be a weird aberration. And if I can't see myself anywhere, in any time of history, in any place, then I guess I'm on my own. I guess we're just the weirdos. 
And so when you start to discover, wait a second, there was this incredible, you know, Contessa, there was this king, this queen, these people who were living lives that are not the same as ours, but they kind of show an element of similarity that you go, wow, we have always been here. Our stories have always been here and we're not these bizarre freaks. We are just part of that rich fabric of human history. So that's why I do it. I love to see on our tours, we have people who may never have come to the museum before or to the, the graveyard, the cemetery, whatever tour we're doing, because they've kind of felt a little bit like this maybe isn't a place for them that maybe people like them aren't in a place like this. But when you kind of extend that invitation and say, hey, we're going to try and tell stories that you will connect to, it, it really does bring it to life. I've seen people cry and get very emotional. I've seen people come up afterwards and be really thankful, um, particularly older generations saying, we never learned about this at school. I never read about this in the books. It's really just, it's so validating to hear that people like you exist. You mentioned kings and queens. Well, we've been talking a lot recently about Queen Anne, haven't we? And after the movie, The Favourite came out. Have you got any insights into Queen Anne and uh, her orientation? It's a fascinating story. And again, talking about labels, I would never describe Queen Anne or Sarah Churchill as being a lesbian, bisexual. I wouldn't use those words. All I can go off is, so I used to work in Greenwich at the National Maritime Museum, which is right next to the Queen's House. And if you go in the Queen's House and you walk in and look up at the ceiling, you'll see that these nine panels that are empty. Uh, and I always thought that was just the design, but it turns out they used to be filled with these beautiful ornate uh, paintings by Horatio and Artemisia Gentileschi. And uh, these were then given by Queen Anne to Sarah Churchill, and then they were then taken to the Marlborough Estate. So that's where you see them now. So, okay, it's a bit of an iffy metaphor, but this was a relationship between two women that was so powerful it brought down the ceiling. And whether you go, okay, that was definitely sexual, that was definitely romantic, for me is almost irrelevant because it was powerful. Like it shaped politics. It was the talk of the court. It really, you know, the people were talking about what was going on with Anne, what was going on with Sarah. Does Sarah have too much influence over Anne? What is causing this? And if you read their letters and remembering that at the time, yes, women wrote romantic letters to each other. That was seen as very normal. Uh, that wasn't necessarily a profession of uh, romantic love or passion. But still, if you just take these letters like out of context and read them, they're two women that care about each other a huge amount. And then the fact that if you have seen the film, it's, the film doesn't claim to be accurate, by the way. It's just a, you know, it's a fantastical image of a real space and time you see that these two women fall out on a huge level. And you have the level in which that um, Sarah Churchill probably or possibly starts spreading rumours and even helping to hand out pamphlets about Queen Anne, which talk about dark deeds in the night and things going on in Queen Anne's bedroom. There's a lot of gossip about the relationship between Queen Anne and Sarah Churchill as well as other women. So do you go off on that and say, well, definitely, I can therefore say Queen Anne was bisexual or a lesbian? No, I, I've not met her. I've not had that conversation. To be honest, she probably wouldn't tell me anyway. But I can infer that for Queen Anne, relationships and friendships with women were incredibly powerful. So just on that level, I can say that a lot of my friends, particularly my lesbian and bisexual female friends, will really resonate with that. They'll know about writing letters. They'll know about the rejection that happens when a female friendship goes awry. So there will be something there. It's not about saying this is definitely this. 
queer history isn't about stamping a label on it. It's about saying, hey, let's just take a moment and look at this, maybe from a slightly different perspective. Presumably queer history is kind of hiding in plain sight, whether it's London venues, whatever it is. Yeah, it's it's everywhere. I mean, we have, we, like I said before, we're woven into the tapestry of humanity. So if you go on the tube today, maybe not at the moment, it being, you know, difficult, but if you wander the streets at any time in London, you will see all kinds of people. And in many ways, the world has always been that. It's been cosmopolitan in different ways at different times. But you know that, you know, if you were to take a snapshot of the history of the world today, it would include all of these lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender voices. And so, you know, if you took that same snapshot in the court of Henry VIII, yes, you're going to find those voices. The challenging thing is, and I guess we've touched upon it, is these voices don't necessarily shout, they whisper, and, and they don't, they're not direct. You never get a letter that says, you know, hello, I am a gay man, and I am in the court of Henry VIII, and I love another man, and this is certain, signed so-and-so. Never get that. You get this elusive kind of trail of breadcrumbs that you follow, and then you make an inference. And that's, that's the challenging thing. But then I would argue, and maybe you agree or disagree, Dan, that history is about, at some stage, making inferences. It is difficult to come down to that clean cut. This is the hard, engraved fact. You just have to take all your evidence and sort of present a case. And then it's in that open court where everyone else can go, well, I think, or I disagree, or have you read this? But yeah, I, I think it's always there. And if you don't look for it, you'll never find it. So you have to be out there looking for it. Completely agree, buddy. And well done you for looking at it. So where can people follow your work? I am on Twitter far too much and you may have to block me because I can be quite inane. Uh, but it is Sasha, that's S-A-C-H-A, downspace coward, C-O-W-A-R-D, like Noel Coward, who is my great, great um, uncle, which is one of my favourite claims to fame. Sasha, downspace coward. And I've also got a website, so I put stuff up on there and get about a fair bit. I love talking about the stuff I love. And thank you for talking to us today. That was fantastic. Thank you, Dan. Hi, everyone. It's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying, and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it, and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically, boosts up the chart, which is good, and then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.